HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. And welcome to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Carlin Turkel. Just want to thank our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. They remind you that every bite has a story. So whether it's a tomato, muffin, T-bone steak, your conscious food choices can change the planet. Because at Whole Foods Market, every single purchase you make helps us support things like animal welfare, organic agriculture, equitable trade, and energy offsets. Let's think before we eat. Let's retake our plates. I'm slightly intimidated by our next guest, <laughs> the prolific Joshua David Stein, um, a fellow three-namer. Um, Joshua is the senior editor at Eater National, has written for an array of magazines, um, t-shirt designer, we'll talk about that, and most recently did some excellent coverage in Lyon, France for the U.S. Boku d'Or um, team. And I think we're going to jump right into that. Right before I ask, the picture that you sent me for the website, were you in front of Prince's Hot Chicken? I was indeed. You son of a bitch. It How was, excellent was it? It was very excellent. Oh, man, my brother lives in that northern, eastern part of Alabama. And I was almost just going to take a drive to Nashville for that. It's worthwhile. The only thing that uh, mitigates its excellence is there's a big poster of Guy Fieri <laughs> being a douchebag. He's, from the- he's been on Double D, uh, Triple D, whatever that show's called. What's diners, drive-ins, and dives? Oh, he's the worst. I, yeah. It makes me angry to see his face. Yeah, yeah. he's just on AM on the front page of AM Metro. Really? For a minute to win it? Okay, I do love that game. You do? More of the scratch-off ticket than the actual TV show, right? It's just because I'm addicted to scratch-off tickets, but uh, it's a fascinating thing. I, I feel like the game is uh, embodies everything wrong with human nature. Really? I can't just become successful without doing anything in one minute? Well, it's being debased on national television for greed. Yeah, yeah. By okay. a douchebag. <laughs> By a douchebag. Um, aside from douchebaggery, 
food. Boku Duor. Uh, I think I'll give you the platform and so you could explain to people exactly what the Boku Duor competition is. Right. Um, well, it's named after Paul Bocuse, who's the uh, obviously a, a very well-known and respected chef based in Lyon, who's, I think, 84 now. And it's a very rigorous culinary competition that happens every two years. Um, starting in, I believe, 1987. And it, it's over the course of two days. And each team, there's 24 countries. Each team has to present two platters. And the only thing that they tell you is what proteins you'll have to use. This year it was monkfish for the fish. Yeah. Avi. And uh, lamb for the meat. Do they tell you kind of like Iron Chef or Chopped, like right before you open the baskets? No? No. Um, they announce it quite early on. Um, Team USA, I know, had been working on their dishes for, I think, 15 months. So wow. there's a lot of time to prepare. Yeah. You have to do a protein and you need three garnishes on the plate. Wow. Those seem kind of very open-ended at the same point, so interpretation is a no it's great i mean it's um i think it has just enough rules to make it interesting and not too many to make it feel arbitrary um in terms of philosophy how you present it all those things are completely open although there's a lot of obviously very classic traditional french preparations yeah and we'll kind of talk about how things are judged and uh, the mind's eye of the U.S. team a little bit later. Um, this year, represented by James Kent and Tom Allen of 11 Madison Park. Uh, and you, you, you met James uh, in Lyon. Did, had you met him before? I don't think I had. I met Gavin Kaysen, who was uh, a coach. Yeah. And a former competitor. Yeah, the chef at Cafe Balloud now. Right. He... I met him at a hilarious game dinner at uh, Danielle yeah. to raise money for uh, Team USA. What was so hilarious about game? Well, it was a $500 dinner. Yeah. And it was a room full of very wealthy individuals um, eating, you know, hair, duck, all those things. And there was a kind of a giveaway raffle type thing, pub quiz Yeah, uh, put on by D'Artagnan, Ariane de Dagon. 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 Um, and one of the questions was, who's representing the United States? Which I thought was a, a pretty easy yeah. question. And that was for the grand prize. And no one raised their hand. So after you know, maybe 45 very long seconds, I raised my hand. And I said, James Kent. S- purely out of selfless desire yeah. to fill the void of silence and ignorance. Um and so I have a fridge full of, you know, truffle butter and duck liver and... Oh, man. I- ignorance is bliss. Ignorance pays. <laughs> yeah. That, so, okay, that shows right there how aware are, you know, citizens of this country of the Boku Duor. I mean, with all this celebrity chefdom and Guy Fieri being posterized everywhere. Not very. Um it's only the last three competitions, r- really, that America has, in some level, become more aware of it. Um, Michael Ruhlman, who I was in Lyon with, brought up the good point that competition, there's not a, a very strong tradition of competition and competitive cooking 
in the United States. In France, you have the MOF, the Médias Ouvriers de France, uh, in a variety of disciplines. And and th- while that's not technically a competition like the Bocuse Doors, yeah, it's it's sort of a technique for technique's sake um, endeavor. And in the United States, competition cooking is largely seen the domain of hotel and catering chefs, chefs who don't have restaurants, chefs who aren't maybe making it in the hurly-burly world of commerce. Chefs who are cooking for, you know, 100, 200, 300 seat, not boutique, not... Exactly. Yeah. Um, That said, this year, Team USA, there's a foundation behind it called the Bocuse d'Or USA Foundation, uh, has raised had raised quite a bit of money and the infrastructure is, is, as I said, building and, um, awareness is building to some extent. I think because the United States didn't finish very well this year, um, interest might not be sustained, but I hope it will be. I mean, it's not a direct, it's not a direct rise. Yeah. But, I mean, look at some of the people behind uh, Boku's Dior here in this country. You said game dinner at, you know, Daniel Balud's restaurant. You have him. Thomas Keller is on the board. Uh, there are some other pretty mighty chefs that are trying to back this. The Culinary Council, which is, I think, 24 or 21 chefs from around the country who get together with Team USA, which is mostly Danielle, Thomas, James, uh, Gavin, uh, I think his name's Mark Erickson from uh, CIA. This panel of chefs, you know, really contributes and helps and gives feedback. And that's everyone from Grant Ackett's to Eric uh, Zebold and yeah. everyone in between. Excellent. Chefs, I think, in the industry. Oh, I see what you just did there from A to Z. Yeah. Okay, excellent. It's good, right? <laughs> yeah, very good. And it's the only two names I know. So. <laughs> um, certainly within the industry, it's becoming more respected. Um, and the other thing is Paul Bocuse is so well known and well loved. That's why Thomas Keller got involved. He said, Thomas, will you please be a judge? So a lot of it is in honor or out of respect for Chef Bocuse. Yeah. Um, I'm actually in the middle, almost finished reading Au Revoir. That was terrible French. To all that, I think it's Michael Sternberger, Sternberg's book about French cuisine, uh, you know, from your to contemporary and how many people cite, you know, Paul. Oh, that seems wrong to say just Paul. Big P. Yeah. Chef Bocuse um, as their mentor or as their idol. Um, almost feels like it doesn't show as much in New York that there aren't fountainheads here. Like there used to be. Obviously, there's Thomas Keller. Obviously, there's Danielle Boulud. But it feels partitioned sometimes. And I don't know if that muddies uh, the view or camaraderie of a U.S. team or, you know, everyone else is trying to do their own little boutique thing and aren't necessarily going for the greater good of the country. Um, I mean, I don't know whether Paul Bocuse was a great chef for France or if he was just a great chef and it happened that his uh, cuisine became totemic and his yeah. influence felt worldwide. Yeah. Um, but I, I do know that he's respected immensely among all the kind of top, well, everyone, but very much so among the top tier chefs in America. Yeah. Did you meet Bocuse? I met him, but he's 
quite old and it's amazing. I met him as he was walking, inspecting the boxes is what, what they call the little kitchens where yeah. the teams compete. And I've never seen a media scrum as frantic <laughs> as, as that. And, you know, he's a, he doesn't speak very much. Um, and he's very kind of slow. He's old, but, but he's a superstar. I think in a way that in America isn't known. We have celebrity chefs, but they're mostly known, yes, for their cuisine, but through different media. Paul Bocuse is known just for Paul Bo- for being Paul Bocuse. He's like for, a bedtime story. Yeah. <laughs> through Ratatouille, perhaps, yeah. he's known most. <laughs> yeah. Um, being there, so it's a two-day event, 24 teams. What happens? I mean, what what is the entry point to the competition? Well, something I didn't know, and I think most people might not know, is the Bocuse door is just one aspect of this huge restaurant and hospitality association trade show called Sira, S-I-R-H-A. So it's in this ginormous convention center that puts Javits to shame. And Bocuse door is you walk through, you know, booths for stemware and ham and toothpick holders and you come into this big auditorium the bookies door it's two days because there's 12 teams per day and then at the end of that uh, the end of the second day they announce the winner um so as a as a spectator you i i can't believe people do it that you just you're in the stands watching this cooking that you can't really tell what's going on yeah and yelling crazily for eight or eight hours. What you know. What are some of the cheers that happen in the crowd? There's mostly a lot of yelling. Um, I think one team had a drum line, <laughs> and because all these chefs that cook in these elite restaurants are used to drum lines. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's you know usually here it's bloggers yeah. and it's a <laughs> and it's a chorus of <laughs> the keypad. Key, yeah, yeah. Key um let's see oh there is a lot of noisemakers i think the swiss had a fair amount of cowbells yeah which is typical of the swiss (laughs) and oh some country some horrible country had air horns and they were making liberal use no they strangely no okay although south africa was not competing yeah (laughs) there you have it um as a spectator i'm not sure exactly how thrilling it is i feel like a lot of people are there just to support their country and it's an act of patriotism more than a spectator sport yeah but but it is thrilling nonetheless yeah and especially if you know the story and you know how hard these guys are working and and you know i i actually i was able well i guess i didn't have the badge but i jumped over the barricade and I could see, you know, Gavin up there doing the prep and all that stuff or directing the prep because he's not allowed in the in the small box. He had to stand on the other side and he, he had a list broken down maybe in five minute increments about everything they had to do for the entire five hours, 35 minutes that they had to <laughs> prepare the dishes. So that added some drama. You know, you saw that, you know, start sous viding the loin or, you know, um, I don't know if you want me to put the caveat out there that your cooking knowledge isn't as deep and, you know. Uh, yes, I'm 
ignorant. <laughs> Not ignorant. You understand food from a different point of view. Um, as you mentioned to me, it's more philosophical. Um, was it intriguing to be there from a food standpoint without knowing all the techniques going in? But, I mean, you just mentioned sous vide, so you obviously know some of it. Oh, I mean, I, yeah. I can see an immersion circulator yeah. <laughs> in front of me. Um, because spectators can't taste the food because the food is really only being tasted by 12 judges. There's 24 judges, 12 for meat, 12 for fish. I'm sure that the technical aspect of cooking is incredibly important, but the vast majority, 99.999% of the people who are experiencing the book used or only experience it from a point of view, completely devoid of tasting the food. Yeah. Um, and, the narrative behind the dishes, which is made explicit in booklets and presentations to the chef, the, sorry, the judges, that's all a part of it. So for me, that's the most interesting. It's also the most interesting to think about two, two guys and the scores of men and women behind them focusing for 15 months on creating these two dishes. Regardless, and that, that was one of the things that after they, perf- they finished 10th, which is, was a very disappointing f- finish, you know, I thought a lot about, is it, what was the takeaway from this? Did they just fail? And they failed, and it's two years of ultimately uh, pointless sacrifice? Or was there something that was gained by their single-minded devotion and um, dedication to creating a dish completely well thought out and perfectly executed yeah i mean it's pretty fair to say it's the olympics of food yes yeah and it at least happens every two years rather than four um it's mind-boggling the numbers that you've given me thus far. uh two days 24 countries five hours 34 minutes after 15 months of preparation 35 minutes 35 minutes uh for two dishes yeah that's it i mean and be, beyond that, it's the amount the amount of money is insane that the United States raised. It's I think in the millions. Yeah. But even one of the th- things I thought was amazing is BMW. So you serve the dishes on uh, these platters. They're not regular platters. You know, the team Denmark, the winning uh, team, kept their platters covered in these big. Uh, white cases the united states partnered with bmw and their platters were you know multi-tiered uh some parts of it drained some parts were kept cold some parts radiated heat you know or or, uh allowed the dish to it transferred heat um dripping pans were sort of uh disguised i mean it was a it's a real beautiful thing that they created that alone they didn't pay bmw for kind of labor they paid it for the fabrication that alone was twenty three thousand dollars for two platters being used once in and that's it a car's worth a cheap car yeah a cheap car i don't even know the price (laughs) zip cars i think thirteen dollars an hour sometimes right a lot of hours on the zip car yeah yeah um so yeah it's I, I mean, that's, that's what I like most about it. It's it's really absurd 
you can almost say it's absurd in you know a, a, a literal sense that all this money devotion time you know agony sacrifice blisters yelling drama pain blood is all for you know five hours 35 minutes and ultimately one bite the one bite that the judges are going to take and after that unless you get something out of the process that's intangible and um, unless you're looking at it purely from a sort of teleological standpoint it's gone it's evaporated it's 15 months of you know. Yeah, I almost feel like you should have uh, walked away with a T-shirt that said, "I went to the Boku Store and I left hungry." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we're going to take a quick break uh, and be back with Joshua David Stein to talk a little about his recent interrogations. <laughs> Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, sitting here with Joshua David Stein. I kept on mixing up your name, um, not on air, but when oh, yeah. trying to initially email you, I'm like, I know it's a combo of three. I know there's Joshua. I know there's something else. I came with so many iterations of your name. I mean, I'm Googleable. That well, you have to. I have to know your name to be Googleable. Yes. Oh man, that was tough to. Yeah, come off with. Um, the Pocuduor, absolutely fascinating. There's still a little bit more I want to touch on, uh, which is the plates themselves, the dishes. I don't know if you remember them verbatim, per se, but what did the U.S. produce this year? Well, fittingly, I can tell you the philosophy and yeah. the story behind <laughs> the dishes. Um, James Kent grew up in Manhattan and in Sag Harbor. So for the meat dish, he, the ingredient was lamb, but he tried to use traditional steakhouse flavors and kind of a callback to Delmonico's and the old style New York restaurants. So there was something that looked like a wedge salad. Yeah. There was 
um, these little tomatoes, which were actually tomatoes and water, you know, lycopin is what it's called. Lycopin, one part lycopin to 152 parts water with, you know, some, it lo- but it looked just like a tomato. Yeah. So that was a um, meat plate and it was like a loin with um, a lamb loin with liver, I think, um, on the inside and then with a little wrap of bacon and then they sous vide the whole thing. Look good. And like a potato chip type. Yeah. There's also a potato chip looking. Yeah. So it was Manhattan. And then the other side was Sag Harbor where he lived with his family, I think during the summers, they had a house and it was very uh, relaxing and very tranquil. And so the monkfish um, kind of played on chowdery, summery um kind of relaxed food but it was most manifest for me as a spectator in the in the platters the platter of the meat plate was i thought beautiful it was reminiscent of a city grid with a lot of verticality a lot of right angles um somewhat chaotic but the chaos tamed by city planning yeah the sag harbor fish plate was all curves there were these things that looked like pylons and then some seaweed and you know just very summery and the thing one of the things although i don't i didn't talk to any of the judges about it but it did seem to me that it was risky having such an autobiographical story i'm sure that you can get to universal truths through the personal and the particular but but it's you're asking people to relate to a story which is so so specific and not maybe inherently compelling. Yeah. And what did Thomas Keller tell you afterwards about the flavor? Thomas Keller said at the end of the day, it's only about what you eat. It's only about the taste. Yeah. So he also said, I said, are you disappointed? He said, we're all big boys. We're big (laughs) boys here. (laughs) I'm sure there was a little bit uh, of a tear shed uh, for Team USA this year. Sure, but not from Thomas Keller. He is a stoic Clint Eastwood of the yeah, kitchen. statuesque, uh, to say the least. Um, Bokudu order aside, your approach to food, as you said, philosophical. Um, also, well, like I said, it was scary for me to have you here, uh, you know, bases itself on Q&A, interview, interaction, um, which it seems like you didn't have that much at the competition itself. It was more spectator and then project. Right. Um, you've been doing these amazing uh, you know, interrogations as you call them yeah. on Eater. But what's so cool about them is not only the people that you've been getting the interview, but how you've taken them out of their element. It's not often this, I'm going to shadow you as you do your job. It's this really cool, relaxed environment. And bringing it back to Steakhouse, you just recently uh, interviewed Adam Rappaport, the new EIC for Bon Appetit at Keens. Yeah. Um, how cool was that? And you are a fashionable dude and got to talk to a fashionable dude. And How cool was that? He was not entirely forthcoming. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed interviewing him. I think he's a, you know, a good guy. I'm curious to see what the new Bone App's going to look like. He didn't have all the moving pieces um, you know, in place, so he was real, really hesitant to, to give any particulars. I would have to say that 
the thing I like most about interrogations, the interrogations I like most are when you feel that the person that you're interviewing is being honest and vulnerable and really thinking about things and uh, open-minded. One of my favorite ones that I've ever done was uh, Andoni from Mugaritz. Oh, yeah. Um, Andoni Luis. Adriz. Uh, yeah, yeah. Adriz. He was so well-spoken about a variety of topics. He really um, drew in a, a life philosophy into the kitchen and and was very honest about his shortcomings, what he... You know what he's scared about, what food is meant to do, and that that to me was kind of my favorite. Yeah. What well, what was his mantra, and what were those you know fears? And he said something interesting. He said, "When you look at a stone, one of the things he serves at uh, Mugaritz is a, a stone, which is actually a potato, but it looks like a stone." He was saying, "When you serve a stone, and you bite into the stone, and it's this." amazing dish and it's delicious you can't and you create that consciousness of of being courageous and looking at something you thought you knew and daring to perceive it being something else that's not something you turn off when you're done eating that's something you carry with you um and as he He's also very into the community that works at Mugaritz. He said, you know, when these people come and they work for me and I work with them to become so well attuned to a spice or an ingredient and sensitive to that, when they're off their shift, it's not a sensitivity you turn off. It's, it applies to everything else. And I thought that was really, really, you know, meaningful, or powerful to me. Yeah. Uh, you also had uh, Juan Marie and Elena Arzak. Did they carry that same kind of uh, influence on you? Um, that was a little more difficult uh, because, well, first of all, Juan Marie is, well, I guess he's talking, well, that was through an interpreter. This yeah. was also through an, uh, an interpreter, but um, the Andoni was also through an interpreter, but for some reason the uh Arzak thing was a little more difficult, although I was still really happy with the yeah. interview and how it turned out. Um, he, Arzak isn't exactly as philosophical, although every interrogation obviously is different. If someone wants to just talk about technique, if Adam Rappaport only wants to talk about f- fashion and Bonap, that's fine. I tend to be more interested in personal development, personal philosophy, um, Vulnerability. That's my wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Arzak was incredibly interesting from a point of view of how his cuisine developed and how it fit into uh, Basque cuisine and new Basque cuisine, but also, um, you know, the international culinary scene. Also, Peter Meehan and Dave Chang were sitting at the table interchange. You know, so there were a lot of people at that table. Yeah. All wonderful people. But the... Andoni was one of my favorites. Yeah. And one of my first ones was also one of my favorites with Eric Repair, um, which was like the first or second one I did. And that was, he took me into the basement of Le Bernardin and he just sat with me for two hours and he is so well-spoken and 
thinks deeply about so many things and has really changed himself. And that was, that was inspiring on yeah. a personal level in a way that hasn't ceased, you know, to change the way I think about things every day. Now, speaking of vulnerability, are you intimidated uh, in dealing with some of these, uh, you know, icons in the sense of? No. No. Because they're, they're also people. They just happen to be really good at what they do. Yeah. And I'm not intimidated. I'm excited to be able to, to talk to them. The one person I, I was intimidated to talk to Mimi Sheraton. Yeah. Because she does not brook fools or banter. She is a very direct woman, but she's also really nice. And she knows so much about New York dining and the history of New York dining um, that that also turned out to be a lovely afternoon. Yeah. You've also had a um, Mary Batali, um, Nigella Lawson, a favorite of mine. She was great. Yeah. And that's, she's another instance where people think of her as, people think of her as a sex pot, essentially. She, is that bad? No, she is a sex yeah. pot. She's also really brilliant and really well-spoken and, and, maybe doesn't get as much credit for that as she she deserves and so one of the things that i think sometimes make the interrogations successful is if you tap into that which the subject most wants to talk about or feels is undervalued or or you know where they want to get out the the other thing i think is i'm a little bit arrogant and clueless in a lot of things in a lot of ways <laughs> but it also means that i don't approach anyone with much reverence i'm respectful but yeah. i don't treat them with kid gloves i don't i hate adhering to pr dic, you know dictates as to what i sh- should ask what i can't ask so and i don't i push back if there's if there's something that i feel is unclear or maybe incorrect or i don't agree with i mean i'm a person too so in these interviews when one person just is a yes man and kind of asks some questions to elicit these you know just to get the conversation flowing that's actually not an exchange it's like i'm a person and i have some thoughts and you're a person and you have some thoughts i've gotten a lot of pushback from the in the beginning more not so much anymore um like joshua we don't care you know about your past or what you've done but what's important for me is that in those interrogations that you're it's really two people having a conversation i I don't think the reader is actually that interested in me i know they're not i'm not interested in me but i am trying to emphasize that 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 we're both bodies in a room you know that we both have our stories and i think that actually brings out some things in the subjects that wouldn't come out if i was well just saying tell me about your new project you know like with the aggregated uh, amount of media that there is it's hard to get something that hasn't already been said right and sometimes that thing that hasn't already been said isn't on that like article fact sheet that their PR person has. And sometimes it's not about their project or their food. It's about, like you were saying, their vulnerability, their innermost. Um, And 
it's funny. I, I think I founded this show on the idea of the intersections of food and art, and sometimes it's loosely, you know, uh, grounded on that. And I let it go wherever it needs to go, you know, and it organically transports conversation one way or another. But that's how it should happen, right? You know, it shouldn't. I come with my notes so I can at least, you know, have a flow and fluidity to conversation, but. I'm not sitting there trying to say, okay, going for that answer, going for no whammy, no whammy, stop, and you get it. Right. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult with chefs who have a lot of projects and are very media savvy to get beyond their marketing, their message, you know? But I don't think I've had any interrogations that have been marketing monologues i think at some point there's always been some level of of real exchange what was the most surprising thing though that you talked about with one of your subjects that you didn't expect to explore i had a great great afternoon with renee redzepi oh yeah i was jealous you spent a couple days with him right no i spent i spent one one day for a long time yeah um i picked him up after the lenny lopate show and we walked through Soho and the Lower East Side. We stopped at um, Russ and Daughters, and then we made our way to WD-50. Yeah, and Rene Redzepi is chef of Noma, San Pellegrino's number one restaurant in the world. He's a big dude. Yeah. He's a small dude, but a big dude. Yeah. Um, he's an oxymoron. And we talked about Jews for a long time. Yeah. Because he's married to a Jew. Yeah. And uh, I, I, well, I didn't think that was going to come up. Yeah. And then we stopped and got locks at... Uh, <laughs> At uh, Russ and Daughters. But Rene Redzebu is a, is a perfect example of someone who's uh, green enough to, and maybe it's just in his character anyway, but he's very open and he's playful and he's smart and he's curious and he's fine talking about anything. Yeah. Um, I keep on hearing this of him, that he is great because he can exist outside of the kitchen. Yeah, well, that was that was something he was saying about living in Denmark is he can close a kitchen for, you know, weeks and it's fine. And yeah. there's there's not the scrutiny and the guessing game and the, all the pressure in New York that he had. I, maybe that's changed now. I yeah. don't know. Um, but yeah. And to bring it back to the Bocuse door, I think that might also hold the key and have something to do with why the Nordic teams were so dominant that... There is this balance maybe that they have that is necessary to create food at the highest possible level that, you know, when food transcends to become art but is still beautiful, you know, that there's some balance that they have that perhaps we we don't hear. Yeah. And Scandinavia took one, two, three. Yeah. Gold, it was um, bronze. Denmark, uh, Sweden, and then third place was Norway. Yeah. You know. I don't know if Rene Redzepi will ever be that open again. You know, I think there was some blowback from that <laughs> interrogation <laughs> in particular because he called uh, Giles Corrin, the critic, a nasty, nasty bastard. Um, which A double nasty bastard? Yeah, two times. Yeah. Two times a nasty yeah. bastard. <laughs> um, which then we had to publish a correction and all this yeah. Michigas, but... But he was great and a real, and a, you know, a real mensch. He's yeah. a real mensch. 
he can say that because he's married to a Jew. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Excellent. Um, last thing I want to touch on, uh, if you've been to the Breslin and now Spotted Pig um, and noticed the T-shirts done by a lot of the staff, um, thank Joshua. You're welcome. Now, <laughs> you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into that aspect, uh, designing T-shirts for, you know, uh, both Spotted Pig and Breslin? And uh, now for the John Dory as well. Those T-shirts are being made. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, my relationship with Ken Friedman has been a long and at times dramatic one. I think we we hit it off on a horrible note because I was working for Grub Street one time and I reported on the John Dory closing in a, in a, in a rather aggressive manner yeah. of going to the John Dory and seeing him walking out and be like, hey, Ken, you know. I, I hear this place is closing tonight. Yeah. What's up? Oh, you had a different voice back then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it was before puberty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which he was unhappy about. Uh, and then we had a, a very intense email exchange. Yeah. Anyway, at some point he invited me for a drink. We had a drink. Hashed it out. He's a good guy. Um, I might have been a little bit aggressive, as I said. And uh, I guess that... At one point, I went to a uh, dinner for a Fergus Henderson dinner at the Breslin, and f- I covered it for the Times for T the Moment um, blog website, um, and I illustrated a bunch of the pictures. Oh, I remember those those Fergus stock uh, yeah. drawings, yeah. And he liked them, so he asked me if I would be interested in designing the T-shirts for for the Breslin, and I said yes, but I wanted to do it only on a barter system, which pretty much all of my artistic enterprises are strictly on a barter system. I don't want to be paid for them. It's not about money. Um, so I did, I have to credit my wife, Anna Heeren for, uh, coming up with a drawing, which is a hipster holding a knife, looking at a pig doubtfully. Yeah. Um, and so I did the Breslin ones and then you can only get the Breslin so much without, (laughs) you know, having a heart attack oh, yeah scrumpets 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 yeah so i landed a gig doing it for the spotted pig which has a slightly more varied menu and now um i i, I just did it for the, the john dory so i can have what, seafood what, what were the t-shirts at spotted pig the t-shirts at the spotted pig were this kind of sad looking pig looking up at the moon and there's a pig in the moon as opposed to a man yeah uh in the moon and uh, are you allowed to preview the John Dory T-shirt? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's a play on the on the Breslin T-shirt, and it's a hipster with a shucking knife looking at an oyster, uh, doubtfully. <laughs> it, does it have like a, a a caption to it, like by Valve? I think it yeah. just <laughs> it says uh, no, it just says the John Dory oyster bar. <laughs> oh, but the other the other. Uh, Breslin one is this lamb and it's clearly going to be slaughtered and it's just saying, oh, fuck. <laughs> Which I wore to the uh, Bocuse door and Team USA really liked it since lamb was one of the yeah. proteins. Excellent. Oh, fuck. Oh, oh, fuck. Yeah, they should just wore those at the, the Bocuse door yeah. itself. Um, and then another quick plug is uh, if anyone's interested in bespoke erotica, that's my other major... Uh, uh, endeavor and clients give me three words and then I write erotica based on those three words and that's also a barter system <laughs> how about um, 
meat. How about lamb, monkfish, and I'll think of a third one. Okay. But I think that's a good foundation. Yeah, that, I would love to do that. <laughs> and that could be a whole nother show. I've got my coffee table. Yeah. I have uh, someone... A drummer recorded a song based on a headline from the New York Times. Yeah. It's bespokeerotica.tumblr.com. .tumblr. And also joshuadavidstein.com, eater.com. Fake Josh Stein Fake on, Josh on Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> so many uh, anamorphic avatar. I just joined Foursquare. Yeah. I don't know about it. I don't know how to check in. I don't know how to check in. No, either. no. I think I accidentally checked into Foursquare the first time I signed up for it <laughs> and then deleted my account because somehow I was mayor of Foursquare. I'm like, I'm not qualified to do that. No. And you yeah. resigned. Yeah, yeah. Actually, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I hear there's pizza and beer after this. I, I've heard whispers of such. Oh, can't wait. So, <laughs> Joshua David Stein. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Thanks again to Whole Foods Market for sponsoring Jack Inslee for being an awesome executive producer. Um, Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Ciao.